Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Stephanie Valakis, an award-winning certified fertility and pregnancy dietitian and nutritionist and the founder of The Dietologist. Stephanie truly believes every hopeful parent should have access to scientifically backed nutrition information to prepare their body prior to conception, support them through fertility treatments, pregnancy, and ultimately bringing home a healthy and happy baby. During this conversation, we take a deep dive from preconception to breastfeeding and everything in between. I really think you're going to enjoy this one. Let's get into it. My name is Shauna Watts. I'm a 40-something mum of four and a passionate family doctor. My personal life journey and my obsession with understanding all things health and wellness has led me to seek out the latest research, talk to many experts and explore the stories of others. The purpose of this podcast is to educate, inspire and help you feel less alone in this crazy life. So I'm inviting you to join these conversations, whether you're commuting, exercising or relaxing. This podcast is all about you. Uh, welcome, Steph. Welcome to All About You. Um, I'd love to begin um, by asking you um, a little bit about who you are and how you've ended up where you are today. Uh, so my name is Stephanie Valakis and I am a Sydney girl, born and bred, as you can probably hear in my voice a little bit. And I come from a Greek family. I grew up in the suburbs of Sydney and I knew I think I was going to be in the world of nutrition from about maybe 15 years old or so. Um, and, and maybe I didn't consciously know, but, uh, looking back, it's really funny because some of my friends from high school were like, you were writing meal plans in your lunch break for all of us. Cause you were appalled by how terrible our diets were. <laughs> and I was like, which 15 year old's diet is any good? Let's be real. Um, and I just went, oh my God, I don't remember that at all. But I remember absolutely loving, I love school. I was, I was really good at school. I was really conscientious and. Um, a bit chatty and, and uh, you know, I had a cheeky side to me, but I never really got into much trouble. And um, I think it was probably my final years of school. I really found a deep love for science. And also I had a, a bit of a interest in, in history and English and things. So I toed and froed about what I was going to do for a career. I came from a family where no one really went to university or pursued tertiary education or had a career that was kind of mapped out for me. It was all kind of do what you like and we'll support you kind of thing. So, yeah, I think um, the science part really, really interested me and I really started to learn more about health. And I think it was medical physics that I did at school that I really loved. And I thought, oh, and my best friend wanted to be a doctor. And I thought, oh, I don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> I said, you can be a doctor. I don't want to be a doctor. And she said, why don't you be, I think she said it. I think she said, why don't you do something with nutrition? Like you love food. Um, you could help people's health with food. And I didn't even really know that was a job. So it wasn't until I showed up on the open day at Sydney University and uh, the head of school was like, this is what being a dietitian's about. This is a degree. And I just went, oh, sign me up. I'm going to do that. Uh, before that, I thought I'd be a scientific researcher. And I had a lot of pressure at university in my early years um, to go into research. And it wasn't 
whilst I appreciate and respect research, I couldn't imagine my life in a lab or, or sitting in an office doing research. And so I really, I really channeled that kind of clinical energy. And so, yeah, that's um, probably a little bit about how I ended up selecting dietetics. Um, I just didn't love the lifestyle element of being a doctor. <laughs> and I, and I, I can say that with, with a lot of respect for doctors because I have many very, very close friends of mine who are. Um, and, and I wanted to influence people in a different way that didn't involve medication in particular, not that I have anything against it, but um, I wanted to, to leverage food. And, and I think that's what I was really passionate about growing up and, and in the context of being in the Mediterranean family, I think as well. So yeah, the love for fertility and pregnancy really came uh, backwards out of a love for pediatric nutrition. So I was in children's health and I thought that was the forefront of preventative health, help the kids, the kids won't get sick later in life. Everyone's happy. I had this very aspirational view that, you know, we could prevent all these diseases. And to a degree, I, I still hold that aspiration of, of, you know, affecting the next generation's health. But I realised that preconception and pregnancy um, nutrition was really where, where I was able to make more of an impact. And I really appreciated the the technicality of it, which I think is often overgeneralized a lot. Um, nutrition is an ex is can be an extremely technical field, um, and we often boil it down into eat your fruits and vegetables, drink water, don't eat chocolate. You know these very broad and sometimes obvious uh, recommendations. But nutrition, the science behind nutrition and the art of recommending, is extremely technical. And we make it look easy, and that's when you know you've got someone good. Um, so I think I think all those things really, really interested me, and kind of drew upon all the skill sets that I was really enjoying. But I mean, my alternative career choice was to be an archaeologist. So you know, I'm full of I'm full of dichotomies like that. So yeah, I th and I think a lot of healthcare professionals will probably say something similar. Like it'll be something creative or historical or artsy or, or, or completely different to what they're doing now. So. Yeah, that's probably a little brief overview of me growing up, where I'm from, and and how I got to dietitian land and fertility dietitian land. Amazing. And so, if um, if someone wanted to come and see you, what would you want them to have done before they come to have a consultation with you? Yeah, I love that question. Thank you for asking it because that makes my job so much easier. Um. What I love to see from my clients before they come into, into a session with us is any pathology results that they may have or if they haven't done some in ages and they do have a health condition or they're trying to conceive that they've had a con conversation with their GP um, and gotten some relevant lab work done. A lot of what we do is founded on the lab work and the, the less visibility we have of those, the less kind of individualized we can be. Um, and the more data we have, the more individualized we can be from the get-go and it avoids slowing down your care in terms of, oh, we need to now wait to the next consult till you get the opportunity to get your labs and then we can do X, then we can do Y. So things like having your iron results, your vitamin D, thyroid functions, often a common one that we're looking at celiac serology um, and then you know more condition specific so if somebody has PCOS we might be looking at liver function and cholesterol and insulin resistance and glucose markers and somebody has endometriosis maybe looking at more inflammatory markers or someone who's 
going through IVF and it's not working, you might be looking at, you know, some, some more autoimmune conditions or looking for kind of an X factor there. Um, so it really does depend on the case, but in general, certainly some nutritional lab work is really helpful. Um, and if you're ever unsure, you can always ask us and ask your doctor as well. And I think that's always a helpful place to start for most people. You don't need to have done a food diary or any of those things. I know a lot of people feel like that's the way, but I personally find that I actually get better data, a better picture and a more realistic picture of how people eat by letting me ask the questions that I need. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes of the consultation, but I get a much better understanding than your food diary. Food diaries are great, but as someone who recently decided to do this experiment on myself, you will leave things out or you will eat differently because you can't be bothered recording it. And so as a result, it doesn't really perfectly and nothing perfectly, but doesn't really reflect how you're truly eating. So a dietitian will be able to, to get everything out of the uh, of what you're eating with the consultation. So you don't really need to do that. Um, and if you've got a GP care plan, for example, chronic disease management plan, bringing that along as well is really helpful. So we can get that set up for you and you can access some rebates. And sometimes people think that they only need to see allied health or a doctor if there's something wrong. But in an ideal world, would you love to see every person, every um, uh, woman preconception like that would be the ideal wouldn't it really to optimize for everyone yes yes that is absolutely correct our vision at the dietologist every hopeful parent will access expert nutrition support and I know that's an ambitious goal because I think there's you know I can't even recall how many thousands and thousands of births there are every year in Australia but you know, I think ultimately for us, we try and try and reach people in different ways. And obviously consultation is, is kind of the tippy top of the pyramid where you're getting that one-on-one -on -one highly personalized advice. And irrespective of whether you think you have an issue, don't have an issue, unsure yet, healthy couple just trying to conceive. I think I've, I've never had someone even who's healthy, just want to do my, the best, who walks away and goes, oh, I learned absolutely nothing that was useless. You know, you always come away with something. And I also think ultimately we do lots of things to help protect our children. You know, we, um, you know, people will uh, delay cord clamping. People will freeze cord blood. People will, you know, do all sorts of things to safeguard their child's future and their child's health. And this is actually the very first thing that you can do to try and safeguard your child's health. Um, and your own pregnancy health because of the impact that preconception, lifestyle factors, health factors, dietary factors can all play in the, the risk of pregnancy complications and genetic programming some, through something called epigenetics. So not actually changing the DNA code, but the way that DNA is expressed can actually program in your child's lifelong risk of certain health conditions, chronic conditions, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, allergies, eczema, asthma, obesity. So we're talking about, you know, huge burdensome diseases that society is now dealing with in hospitals, in clinics and everywhere. And I think we need to have that conversation. It's not a guarantee. It's a risk reduction strategy, but it's to change your diet and lifestyle for that potential positive outcome. 
it feels like a very small price to pay when we're paying much higher prices elsewhere. So I think it's just also for us at the dietologist, it, yes, it is about consultations. Yes, it's about individualized advice, but it's also just getting the message out there about it. So raise the societal awareness about how important this is and how much of an impact it can have beyond fertility, just talking about health. And I think that is the that is the key for for us and 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 for a lot of healthcare professionals as well. I think we've done very well, really, over the years in convincing people about taking their folic acid and reducing the risk of um, things like spina bifida. But I feel like it's probably ground to a little bit of a halt after that. And I think people aren't really aware of what health conditions they can influence by, you know, changing or improving their diet. Would you be able to give us a couple of examples that our listeners might be able to put in to practice? In terms of conditions that may be amenable by diet from from a preconception health and fertility standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. We will start with like, I would start with like the reproductive health category. So things that may affect your fertility or affect the health of the pregnancy, for example. Um, So the most common ones that we see are polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. It's a cluster of symptoms that typically manifest as uh, an irregular cycle, which is kind of usually the main barrier to conception um, for PCOS. Um, But it also can result in hair thinning, acne, and excessive hair growth in places like your chin, your jawline. Sometimes people have more hair on their arms and legs or chest or um, tummy and things like that. It's called hirsutism. And you may also have what's called polycystic appearing ovaries, which isn't necessarily cysts as we think of a cyst. Um, It's actually follicles that can't quite develop fully. So polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCS, one of the most common uh, reproductive health concerns that we see. And it's also one of the most common affecting fertility. And we know that diet and lifestyle can have such a significant role to play in PCOS management. We can actually, using diet, lifestyle, supplementation strategies, can actually get people's cycles back to completely regular. I've had clients with all their symptoms disappear, the ovarian morphology completely reverses and and. and Thankfully, like we're seeing more acknowledgement of the role that dietitians can play in PCOS with the release of the latest international PCOS management guideline by Monash. And I think that that just continues to highlight it. There is this hyperfixation on weight in PCOS because many people with PCOS will struggle with higher body weight and they may also struggle with insulin resistance, which is a much higher statistic again. But not everybody with PCOS will be in a large body. And also, Weight is, you can independently improve your PCOS management with diet and lifestyle without necessarily changing body weight either. And the last guideline also highlighted this, which I was really thrilled to see. And so that's one way that, that's one group of people. Another group of common people is endometriosis, which affects now, what's the latest statistic, one in seven. Um, and that's a inflammatory condition. It's chronic in nature. It typically causes pain, but not always. One of the most common uh, symptoms that I see of endometriosis is actually infertility. And a lot of people don't find out that they have endometriosis until they are quite far down the path of trying to conceive. 
Uh, endometriosis is a physical growth, however, so sometimes surgery needs to be involved as well. But nutrition may not be able to stop the progression of the disease or stop it from occurring or reverse it, but we can reduce the amount of inflammation in that environment, which may be negatively affecting the quality of the eggs. It can actually even hurt the, the, the sperm coming in if you're trying to conceive unassisted and implantation. So nutrition is a really important factor there. And then we also have hypothalamic amenorrhea, or sometimes called HA, and that is a suppression of ovulation due to typically under-eating, uh, so not enough energy in, over-exercising, too much energy out, and chronic stress. You either get one to three of all those factors coming into play. This is extremely common, and it's also commonly misdiagnosed as PCOS because sometimes these women also happen to have lots of follicles and so they qualify also for a diagnosis of PCOS and then they try and lose weight or try and eat really low carb or something that they've read is good for PCOS but they're actually making their hypothalamic amenorrhea much worse. So the aim of the game with people with HA is really to get that period restored by ensuring they're eating adequately, a wide variety of foods, helping them with any dietary restrictions. Many people with HA also have an eating disorder, and, but not everybody, but a lot of people do, and helping them to ovulate. I mean, anovulation is such a big part of fertility concerns and preconception health. Then other ones that people commonly don't think a dietitian could help them with in light of fertility, but we can. Thyroid diseases, Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, Graves, they all have nutritional implications and symptom profiles, celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, also diabetes, uh, bariatric surgery, if you've had that before, um, IBS. There's a whole host of conditions that come into play. And sometimes they are, you know, really commonplace and sometimes they're quite you know, rare and, and, and weird and wonderful, as I like to say, but not weird as in like a shamey way, but just, you know, you wouldn't say that every day. Um, and there's a whole host of those, those reasons. And so if you know you've got maybe one of those things going on for you, you suspect you do, then especially then those people need to come in. And probably another cohort of people that I would really encourage as well is um, anyone who's following a vegan or vegetarian diet, that's particularly pertinent um, because there are just so many nutritional gaps um, and you will likely need more monitoring nutritionally and likely more supplementation as well. Folic acid will definitely not cut it if you're vegan or vegetarian. Okay. And what about the male um, partner? Would you like to see them as well? In an ideal world, absolutely. Um, male fertility is something that... I'm kind of seeing more attention about I'm seeing more attention maybe not enough action I don't know it's it's an interesting time but we're seeing sperm counts in concentration and overall sperm quality declining and declining I think I can't quote the statistic perfectly but I think it's like men of today have 30 30 to 50 percent less than their grandfather sperm it's it's in that realm and they will see some kind of media articles being like oh by 2040 there'll be no sperm left we'll just go to zero and we'll just die out as a human race and i don't know if that will happen like i don't have a crystal ball but i mean it's trending down and quite severely and that cannot be a genetic issue because you can't 
change genetics like that in two generations of people. It's obviously lifestyle um, and there's lots of different factors involved in that. But male preconception health is so important for a variety of factors. Sperm health is one of them. Obviously, that's 50% of the DNA that's going to become your future baby. So we want that to be good. Um, men have a distinct advantage in that they get a refresh button on their sperm production every few months and they can get almost like a clean slate again. That doesn't mean that you can't have a long-term impact on your reproductive health by doing some things. You absolutely can. There's many examples of this. Steroid use is one of them. Some kind of trauma to your reproductive organs will do things like that. You have a various seal, things like that. But for the most part, the vast majority of male factor infertility that we see is correctable with a lot of lifestyle strategies and, and the data seems to support that. So that helps from a conception standpoint. But I think a lot of men, and I think we've done maybe not, not an excellent job at this, like from more of a public health perspective, we've kind of treated men in the, in the conception picture as a bit of like sperm donor. Like you're just here to give me sperm. And obviously that is kind of true, but it's actually not the whole picture. We actually know that the, the health of a future dad before he becomes a dad is quite correlated to the health of his child, whether that be genetics or through role modeling or both. And we're also starting to understand that a lot of miscarriage risk is not necessarily linked to maternal health, but paternal and, and what the sperm is doing. And even certain diseases um, and disorders that we're seeing at higher rates are associated with dads who are older, not just mums who are older. So all those factors are particularly relevant and important. And I think men have more of an opportunity to get a clean slate than women, but most of them don't take that opportunity reproductively to do that. It is a little bit frustrating uh, as a clinician because, you know, I sometimes speak to people who are, you know, jumping through every imaginable imaginable hoop trying to optimize their fertility and reproductive health and their partners you know going to the pub and sinking 24 beers on a Friday night and they feel really frustrated by that and I can share that frustration but I've also learned to kind of detach and be like I can't make anyone do something that they don't want to do and that's not on me to get them to come to the party so ultimately with anything lifestyle related you cannot force anyone you can lead a horse to water you can't get them to drink I can't eat the food for you, you know, so we need to make sure that people are interested and invested. But I would say that's increasingly now the minority of men. I think now as time's gone on, it's more chat about it. Um, I think also just age, like new generation of, of men in relationships who they're going to try to conceive and things like that. Um, increasingly I'm seeing men in consultations and, and, and increasingly I'm also seeing men being the ones initiating wanting to work with us, which is super cool. Like, I've been listening to all these podcasts. Can me and my wife come and see you? So we love to see it. We absolutely love to see it. In an ideal world, yes, just like a fertility specialist wants both conception partners in the room for their assessment. Yes. Does it happen most of the time? Not most of the time, but it probably happens a lot more than what it used to. Yeah, it's improving. I would agree. I, I definitely um, have more... Um, couples who come together for the first couple of antenatal appointments with the GP, which is, I absolutely love that as well. I just think it just shows such an investment that it's not 
just um, the female partner who's pregnant. It's like, you know, that um, both partners are really invested, which is, is, is so good. Okay. So um, the patient um, or the um, person has fallen pregnant and um, we can go, we can sail through pregnancy or we might go down that route, which um, unfortunately I did, which was hyperemesis and being really, really sick in pregnancy. And I just wondered if you had any hints or tips for anyone who is struggling with those awful first few weeks that can feel pretty miserable and, and can be much more than a few weeks of feeling extraordinarily nauseated, vomiting. And um, most women will describe an intense fatigue that doesn't even seem to make that much sense um, whenever they uh, their baby's the size of a jelly bean. Um, mm. But um, I, I'd love to know if you have any little hints or tips that are helpful at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I might put hyperemesis in a slightly different basket because usually anything you suggest for hyperemesis, someone's like, I did all that and it still didn't work. And that's just hyperemesis for you. <laughs> you can only try. Um, so, you know, nausea and vomiting in pregnancy is a big spectrum. You can get people with absolutely no symptoms or extremely mild levels of nausea and no vomiting. You've got really persistent and intrusive kind of levels of nausea. And then you get people who are nauseous and vomit. And then you kind of slide all the way up the spectrum to hyperemesis where, you know, it's persistent and, and dehydration occurs as electrolyte dysregulation and all sorts of other things. So there's a slider that, that we need to keep in mind. I think the biggest issue that I see clinically is that particularly people that we work with at the dietologist is that these are often proactive health focused individuals who want to do the best that they can. They know that this is important and they value it. So when they get pregnant and I warn them, hey, your diet isn't going to look like this once you conceive because you won't be able to eat salmon and spinach and tomatoes and brown rice for dinner. You just won't want it. Like, they're like, oh, okay. Like they they can acknowledge it logically, but when it starts happening to them, they're like, I know you told me, but I, I don't think I actually believed you properly until now I'm experiencing this nausea, this fatigue, the food aversions. Why does everything smell bad? The, the list is kind of endless. And I think it's mostly about expectation management more than anything else. I always tell my clients trimester one is about surviving. Try and keep your prenatal vitamin down. That's your micronutrients. If you get a good prenatal vitamin that we've sorted out for you, tick. You don't have to really worry too much about it. That's ultimately the only increased demand you have for anything is, is in micronutrients. Is it ideal to be eating, you know, your sixth bowl of pasta for the day? No. But if that's what you need to get enough energy in to get through, you just got to do it. So I think hydration, cold foods, really helpful. Icy poles, ice blocks. It's why lots of women with HG love like frozen Cokes and things like that because it's so cold it kind of suppresses all the sensory component. Um, smaller and frequent, more frequent meals. Lean on things like starchy carbs, salty foods, crackers, dry things. Eat something the moment you wake up, like your eyes open before you're even vertical for the day. Shove something in your mouth, pretzels, crackers, salted cashew, whatever. And don't think that not eating will help your nausea because as your blood glucose comes down, the nausea ramps up. 
And the more that you go to correct that with a really high glycemic index food, like a lolly or something like that, you'll shoot it back up and it'll feel really good temporarily, but you'll come crashing back down again really hard. So as difficult as it is, even just trying to smoothen that out, like I literally said to a client yesterday, like you can have the lolly, but just maybe have some fruit at the same time if you can manage fruit because you're managing fruit okay. Even that little bit of extra fiber will just help slow it down a little bit more. You won't crash as hard. So sometimes it's like I'm giving recommendations like that. It's not like it's time to eat five sets of vegetables and eat your meat and eat your fish and people are like, I haven't eaten any like protein-rich foods in like two weeks. Like what do I do? I'm like it's okay. You're going to get protein from all these other sources of food. So the main like red flags to look out for is, you know, prolonged vomiting, severe dehydration, weight loss. Like if you're losing more than 5% of your body weight, 3 to 5% of your body weight, they're probably the things that you're like, I need medical attention. And also know that you can go to your GP and obstetrician and ask for medication to help with the nausea as well, particularly if it's affecting your life, your work, your, your mental health, like they're there for a reason. So please reach out and get help with that. Some people find things like ginger, quite helpful or vitamin b6 most prenatal multivitamins are built in with enough b6 to do that for you so you don't usually have to seek it out but just depends on what you're using so they're my kind of key tips but honestly it's just about appearance versus reality like you think everyone's having green smoothies for breakfast in trimester one on instagram nobody is they're like eating the dry wheat bix and like questioning their life decisions on the couch feeling awful like it 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 I think it's it's that kind of management and often because people who go through IVF and infertility, particularly the cohort of people that we work with, they're like, I feel like I can't complain. I have to be grateful and not whinge about the, the vomiting and the nausea because I wanted this. And I'm like, you can still complain. It's allowed. You can want this and complain and acknowledge it is bad. It is bad. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I remember with my first pregnancy, I was sick with all of mine, but I just remember I used to have digestive biscuits for breakfast, lunch and dinner and be driving along in my car just with bags of digestive biscuits and then little basins to vomit in. It was horrific. It was not fun and I did not enjoy it one bit. I was not a glowy pregnant person. So it isn't always a lovely time. It can be really challenging for some people. And um, there are obviously are foods that um, pregnant women should avoid. I, I would love it if you could chat us through those and just give people a little bit of an understanding as to why we're asking them to avoid those foods rather than just giving people a list and say you can't have it and just it is what it is. Yes, this is a very big conversation, <laughs> particularly at the moment. I'm increasingly seeing influencers just being like, this is my risk profile and I will do what I want, which I can respect. But also when you've got a big profile and it's a public health issue, I have questions. The way that I like to talk about food safety with my clients when I get the opportunity to have enough time to talk about it, when usually we're just like playing whack-a-mole with nausea and food aversions, which is typically the main concerns that they're having in a trimester one consultation, is you've got two classes of food safety issues. You have a direct toxin, right? Alcohol, vitamin A or retinol. That's why you can't use your tretinoin on your skin when you're pregnant or breastfeeding. Um, mercury, don't eat the big fish. Those things directly can cause direct toxic harm to, to baby. That's why that they're out. 
Then you've got bacteria that have a risk slider. So those most common types of bacteria that we uh, recommend trying to minimise your exposure to, and by saying minimise, I mean you can get exposed to any of these bacteria in some random food that we didn't think of. It can happen. It's not to cause anxiety, but like if you think like this is 100% safe and this is 100% not safe, that's not how it works. There's, there's historical data and what we think is considered higher risk or lower risk, and that's how those guidelines get made. So on the bacteria front, you have listeria. People who are pregnant have a change in their immune function, and so they are at the increased risk of listeria. Uh, of, of getting listeriosis. The second is salmonella. There's no increased risk of developing salmonella when you're pregnant. This is like one of the most common like food poisoning ones. Um, but there is a small risk of a complication of getting salmonella where bubs is affected. And that's why we, we try and minimize your exposure to high risk salmonella foods. Then there's some other like peripheral ones, things like toxoplasmosis, so kitty litter and um, not cooking your meats all the way through and raw foods and things like that. Um, so that's another one as well that you just had a higher risk of being pregnant. They're the main three. There's some other smaller ones and just general food safety stuff that you need to be aware of. And so the foods that are on that food list are derived from one of those categories of things. That's why it's there. And like I said, nothing is... 100% safe and nothing is 100% a risk. And so I'm somebody who loves to sit in like Facebook pregnancy mum groups and, and read what people are talking about because it sometimes gives me ideas of what to post on Instagram and stuff and answer kind of people's questions. And some of the most frustrating posts that I see, and sometimes I comment on them and sometimes I don't, sometimes I just shut up and bite my tongue and fade into the background. But it's often like, oh, I'm really craving a soft serve ice cream for McDonald's. Like, is it really that bad? Like, why do I have to avoid this? Or like, isn't it just better if I if I have it because I'm craving it? Or whatever that kind of language is around that. And I don't have a problem with that question per se. What I have a problem with is then the people in the comments being like, I ate whatever I wanted in my pregnancy and my baby's fine oh, our mums didn't do this, blah, 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 blah. All these different, you know, kind of survivor bias type of stories. And I appreciate all that. But whilst it's very uncommon for people to get sick with listeria or get sick with salmonella and it cause a pregnancy-related complication, the risk-reward ratio just, like, is so off that we just go, eh, let's just be a little bit more conservative here, just in case. And there's probably going to be more data that will come out that will start to make more foods that were on that list off that list and off, off that list on that list. That's always going to happen. But that's the, like, 101 behind it as to why that is, uh, why they are there and, and what their kind of purpose is. And what about coffee? Um, I always get lots of women asking me about are they allowed to have coffee, how many coffees are they allowed to have, etc. And... Obviously, coming to Australia, coffee is like a national hobby and pastime. I'm one of those weirdos and I don't like coffee and I don't drink coffee. So um, I'm not very good at particularly understanding people's obsession with it. But clearly, I'm the one who's weird and all you guys aren't weird. 
Um, so can you talk to a little bit about why the coffee thing became a bit of an issue or what, what was the research showing? And also, are we allowed to have a coffee if we're pregnant or not? Yes, great question. So it's not about coffee, it's about caffeine, <laughs> which is commonly found in coffee, black tea, green tea, matcha tea, hot chocolate, chocolate, sports products, pre-workouts, energy drinks, things like that. So caffeine is the potential issue. Um, and so when we know from the larger studies that more than 200 milligrams of caffeine per day seems to be linked with some pregnancy-related complications, so small babies and things like that. There's also been some other tenuous data around um, infant risk for developing leukemia and other things as well. So there's certainly some like definite potential downsides of doing more than 200 milligrams per day of caffeine. But I don't know about you, but before I became a dietitian, I had no idea what the milligram caffeine content was of my skinny latte at the cafe. And you probably won't either exactly know what it is because I think there was a, um, like a little like local audit that was done. I think it was in Brisbane of like 20 or 30 cafes. And they actually uh, looked at the caffeine content of a single espresso shot. And it ranged so much from like 60 milligrams of caffeine per shot to, you know, 120, 150 milligrams per shot. So it depends on the bean, how it's extracted, this, that, like there's a million, too many factors. But what I say is on average, if we, put it in the middle and go a little bit more conservative, you're probably getting about 100 milligrams of caffeine per single espresso shot per day. So you definitely don't want to be doing more than two. And even two, like I said, if it's on that higher side, you're probably slightly over. So that's something to factor in. If you're having four cups of black tea per day or two espresso shots per day, that's probably your max. If you're a mix and matcher, you need to do the maths on that. Tea is about half, so it's about 50 milligrams per day if it's strongly brewed. Chocolate and things are pretty negligible. Hot chocolates and things like about five milligrams, sometimes 10 milligrams. Unless you're eating like a whole lint block, it's probably not really worth factoring in that much. Um, and that's that's really the the idea behind it. We're not trying to punish you for how tired you feel and to deprive you of coffee. Um, the idea is really just to protect you from um, any excess caffeine. There was a study that was published a few years ago that caused a lot of uh, questions and drama. I like to call it drama when my email inbox blows up after seven years, posts something uh, alarmist about something related to pregnancy and nutrition uh, with the author saying that their recommendation was that, you know, caffeine's not essential. Why, we rec why are we even normalising up to 200 milligrams everyone should just aim for zero kind of thing but it wasn't founded on any new research it was just a narrative literature review and they were like this is our this is our recommendation which is fine they can have their recommendation but the public health guidelines are still the same as they are yeah. and um often women ask um how much more they should be eating in pregnancy Obviously, um, an old fashioned thing was, you know, you're eating for two, you know, I eat up and obviously uh, that's not quite the case. And, um, but again, uh, I think people are just so much more knowledgeable nowadays and they, they really do want to understand, you know, how much more actually should they be eating or in fact, should they be eating anything more 
Um, are you able to give us just even a little simple guidance as to how much we would be needing in each trimester, for example? So in trimester one, you need no extra energy, just the micronutrients. In trimester two, you need the micronutrients and extra energy. It's a small increase of about 300, 350 calories per day. That should be coming from protein and grain food groups. And then in third trimester, it goes up to 400 to 450 calories per day. And that, again, protein and grain groups are your priority focuses there. So that's the rough guide of uh, pregnancy nutrition. Uh, it does change based on your pregnancy. So, for example, if I have somebody who's starting at a very much lower body weight and they need to do catch-up pregnancy weight gain, then it's more. And if I have somebody who's starting at a very high body weight and we're trying to minimise excess gestational weight gain, then it might actually be the same all the way through, for example. Okay, great. That's really helpful. And obviously social media, we, we love it and hate it probably in equal measure. I definitely see a lot of videos and pictures of um, people showing off their tummy, um, you know, seven days after having their baby or two weeks after having their baby. And again, I'll have patients asking me, so how quickly can I start losing weight or how how quickly should I be back into my jeans? And that seems to be a bit of a trend as well to, you know, can you leave hospital wearing the jeans that you wore before you were pregnant and things like that? And obviously I'm not encouraging of people doing that, but um, I would love your thoughts. Is, is that something that you will get asked about? And also, you know, how much extra nutrition do people need to really get breastfeeding established? Yeah. I think um, I think it's a a symptom of body image concerns, and and also the diet cultureiness that has invaded motherhood. It's really sad because your uterus isn't even back to the size that it was two hours after you had a baby. Like it's just not really that possible for most people. Um, and you also need a certain amount of fat stores laid down biologically to establish breastfeeding as well. So I think it's a it's a it's a standard that people comparing themselves to or trying to uphold that is just not feasible for the, the vast majority of people. And I think the line is that a lot of people will say, oh, I just want to feel like my old self, or I want my I want to have some part of my body back or some kind of autonomy around that because, you know, you were just co cohabitating with another human being in your belly for the last nine months or so. So I appreciate that element of it. But I think um, realistic expectations, ultimately what I say to people around weight management, if they start asking me about it in pregnancy, I usually just say, look, have the baby come back to me when you're, when you've got a better sense of what this is like before you start forecasting that you're going to be back at the gym at eight weeks postpartum good for you if that's you but again realistically the vast majority of people that is not the case um and so i usually say look between four to six months postpartum is probably a good time to evaluate where you're at weight wise how much sleep you're getting it's extremely dependent on that and what your capacity is to actually refocus a little bit more on yourself. Not to say that you can't focus on yourself before that each day in small ways, absolutely. But weight management takes a lot of extra time and energy and effort 
and that's going to take a little slice of your capacity pie for the day um, as well as being a parent and you know working if you're working and all the rest of it so I usually say to people you know around four to six months is the time to to consider it before then I think you're, you're dreaming your body will just do what it's going to do genetically speaking and such is that from a breastfeeding perspective the other concern is that if you're in a quite a significant energy deficit you just won't be able to support breastfeeding and and many people are shocked to know that breastfeeding actually requires more energy and even in some cases more micronutrients than pregnancy itself so you need 500 to 750 calories extra on top of your preconception nutrition per day to establish and support breastfeeding because it is literally an energy burning activity you need more fluid because you're losing more fluid you need to make sure that you're getting enough sleep how do you do that with the baby very difficult um you know there's there's so many aspects to it you know your feeding routine your latching and lactation consultants other people to, to talk about that supply and demand kind of ideology but my point is is I think a lot of people go down this rabbit hole when breastfeeding and trying to establish breastfeeding of lactation cookies and teas and products and I, I feel a lot of the times and I, I'm saying very generally speaking I feel like sometimes some companies can be quite predatory in preying on people who are quite vulnerable um, who would do anything to establish breastfeeding and to help and you know you'll get these awesome reviews for these products which is great that it's helped them but I also wonder how many of those women were just eating their fourth piece of Vegemite toast for the day not eating enough and then they're eating three or four of those lactation cookies which will be high in energy and yes they'll have brewer's yeast and oats and fenugreek in them and all the galactagogs that are meant to help you turn into a milk machine you know whatever that they're promising but ultimately I just think it's a caloric issue above everything else and those things are like little cherries on top once the caloric issue is fixed and so I think that is a common kind of like competing interest that women will have they'll come to me I really want to breastfeed or I'm having issues with breastfeeding but I'm really dissatisfied with my weight at the same time and I'm not sleeping and I'm like okay well we're not going to be able to do all these things simultaneously you're coming to me there's no miracle pill that fixes all these things so we need to what what's your priorities here like let's talk about them genuinely and let's make a phased approach I worked in a postpartum clinical research study and we would see women for postpartum nutrition counselling at six months because that's when they could kind of come up for air, baby start some solids and not as relying on you as they were, you know, a few months ago. And they can start to actually see themselves a little bit more separately to the baby. They can give the baby to creche and go to go and exercise if they want to and things like that. So that is really tricky. And I think society, social media, diet culture has a lot to answer for, for applying this kind of pressure to new parents. It is so, so gross. I hate it. <laughs> I hate that pressure. <laughs> me too, me too. And in terms of hydration, I often find a lot of breastfeeding mothers don't actually drink enough fluids and yep. they're completely dehydrated, sometimes they end up with urinary tract infections. My tip is always to say, um, whenever you sit down to feed, have a large glass of water right beside you and try and drink that as, as the baby's drinking, you're think about that you're replacing that. But, um, 
Do you have any um, sort of markers of how much hydration um, someone should be having an average if they're breastfeeding? So the general recommendation is 2.8 to 3 litres per day. And the easiest way you can check is just look at the colour of your urine. So urine should look like champagne. If it looks darker than that, you're not hydrating enough. If it's like water, then you're probably overhydrated. Um, most prenatal vitamins will temporarily make your wee look about fluorescent yellow. So ignore the first wheeze after your prenatal vitamin. Look later in the day. And if it's any darker than champagne, you're probably underhydrating or dehydrated. And sorry, the last thing that I want to ask you along this journey is um, women who end up with postnatal depression. And what do you think the role of diet might be in the treatment of women with postnatal depression? Do you feel there's, and um, we should be bringing the dietitian in and involving them with that patient? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, postnatal depression obviously is uh, common and for many people quite debilitating or sometimes they're a bit shocked that 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 they have that diagnosis. Obviously, mental health support is your kind of first stop and making sure that they're medically safe and all those kinds of things. But looking broader, um, a lot of the work that I do in P&D is actually before people are even postpartum. So I actually prepare all my clients for postpartum and breastfeeding whilst they're pregnant. I find that generally speaking, once they go on maternity leave, they have a little bit more time, they have a little bit more energy to think about it, not energy as in energy, but like mental space um, to think about it. And a lot of the strategies we actually embed, we, we don't even necessarily call them out, but we're thinking about all these things in the background. So for example, one of the main things that we, we really focus on is iron status. Iron status in pregnancy notoriously drops off because of the rap rapid expansion in blood volume. Your iron status is one of the one of the biggest nutritional links to your risk of postnatal depression. So we need to make sure that in your pregnancy, as much as possible, we're maintaining and improving your iron reserves, and that as well, not knowing what how much blood you'll lose at birth or postpartum, that we're trying to set you up as as well as possible so that you're not left deficient. A lot of people in trimester three will become quite deficient and you cannot out supplement it uh, quickly enough. So typically then we need to look at things like iron infusions and things like that. We advocate a lot with our clients for these because just looking at timelines, you just you just cannot correct. It doesn't matter how much iron supplement you take, you're just not going to, you're not going to get in front of that runaway train now. Like it's kind of, past that point and that is probably one of the biggest factors other things are omega-3 status so we we at the dietologist we supplement everybody pretty much with omega-3s preconceptionally in pregnancy and postpartum so that's another factor that we look at and also b vitamins there was also a more recent study it was very small though around the mediterranean diet being prevented being helpful and preventative um, and that the the hallmarks of increased risks of pnd were higher red meat intake and processed meat intake as well. So that's something as well to factor in. I think though, it, I think it can be used in the context of somebody's received a diagnosis of PND, but I think realistically speaking, if I'm, I'm speaking from like a realistic lens, I'm not sure 
if somebody with postnatal depression who's struggling, seeing their doctor, seeing their psychologist or counsellor, is going to have the space mentally to see a dietitian and actually work on their nutrition because, like I said, I can't eat the food for you. So I'm not sure if it's just going to feel like more homework. Um, and so a lot of the work that we do is is beforehand to try and mitigate risks based on the data or associating deficits in those nutrients and PND um, more than anything because I actually find people with postnatal depression generally will withdraw. They'll, they'll pull out. They're not going to – they don't step – forward they they withdraw so it's it's not that it shouldn't or we we can't we absolutely can but realistically speaking people disengage they don't engage at that point absolutely and that might be for anyone listening if you are the mother or the friend or the sister of someone who's recently had a baby and you're worried about them from a mental health perspective that might be something really practical that you can do to help that person you know not specifically saying would you like me to make you a meal or would you like me to do some shopping just make the meal make the make something really tasty and nutritious and take it around the person's unlikely to reach out and ask for you to help but they probably would be amazing if you did and Steph you have been amazing I know that this um uh, conversation in no way replaces coming and having a personal um consultation with you or any other amazing and preconception dietitian but thank you so much you've taken us on an amazing journey and um, I wondered whether you had any resources that you think are particularly helpful that you could direct our listeners to and then we'll make sure to put those details in our show notes as well yeah absolutely um our favorite and everybody's favorite is our preconception lifestyle checklist which is free and available to download it's one, one page about why it's important, one page for, for women and one page for men, for those who are trying to conceive with a man. If you're not, like somebody messaged me this morning being like, I have a female partner. I'm like, just bin the, bin the last page. Don't worry about it. You don't need that. Um, I was like, you're getting the good sperm from the fertility clinic. You don't need that one. So that would be probably my go-to for preconception. If you're looking for more just general kind of tips and broader stuff, things like IVF, fertility, um, pregnancy postpartum then I would recommend giving us a follow on Instagram at the underscore dietologist we're super active there there's like a thousand posts there's lots of things to learn our blog posts our blogs are really helpful as well which are easily searchable and categorized so it's the dietologist.com.au to find our blog and also our podcast fertility friendly food which we've just wrapped up but there's still 120 episodes that you can go and binge listen to so if you already listen to this podcast you like podcasts go and um go and find those and if you don't know and i i get this um question a lot but in Spotify, when you go to the podcast page, if you just pull the page down slightly, you can search keywords in that podcast's titles and streams. So if you've got PCOS, you just pull down, type in PCOS. You've got endo, you pull down, you type in endo, and all the podcast episodes relating to that topic will pop up. So just a little life hack for everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for giving me your time today. It's been so helpful. I'm sure our listeners are going to really, really enjoy this episode. And um, I'm hoping that maybe in the future you'll come back and we can um, do a bit of a deep dive into PCOS and endometriosis. Yes, sounds awesome. Thank you for having me, Shauna. It's been a pleasure. 
This podcast and any information, advice, opinions, or statements within it do not constitute medical, healthcare, or other professional advice. Information is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you have any health concerns, always consult your doctor.